As Israel's war in Gaza continues, daily life for people there is becoming more dire. Hundreds of thousands of Gazans are starving, and access to food is getting harder as age just trickles in. We know that it's really, really difficult. We've been told or heard from the World Food Program that more than 90% of people in Gaza are facing crisis levels of hunger. Aid agencies are, are sounding the alarm that famine is looming. Um, and it's very difficult to get supplies and food into, into Gaza, first of all, and then once in Gaza to the people who need it. UN issued a new warning saying Gaza is now suffering from a humanitarian crisis unprecedented in modern times. One of the biggest problems, a lack of food and water leading to widespread famine. The WHO... According to the United Nations, 90% of Gazans are displaced. More than one in four are starving. International agencies accuse Israel of using food as a weapon of war. And so it's just become a really catastrophic situation. Claire Parker is the Cairo bureau chief for The Post and has been covering the Israel-Gaza war. She's reported how difficult it is to deliver aid, including food, to people in Gaza. And the World Health Organization has warned that the death toll from sickness and starvation in the coming months could uh, surpass the number of people killed by bombs and, and bullets and tank shells so far in the war. Um, and that figure already stands at more than 24,000, according to Palestinian health uh, ministry in Gaza. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Thursday, January 18th. I'm your guest host, Arjun Singh. Today, Claire explains why getting basic necessities into Gaza is so tough. And we hear how this crisis is at the heart of a high-profile genocide case against Israel. Claire, we're just over 100 days into the war between Israel and Hamas. As you would describe, there's this deepening humanitarian crisis in Gaza. So tell me more about that crisis. I know there's hunger and disease that Gazans are experiencing, but what are you and other reporters in the region seeing right now? So as I mentioned, the threat of famine is very real. The World Food Program has said 9 in 10 Gazans are eating less than one meal a day. It's cold, it's winter, and disease is spreading quite rapidly since sanitation services are basically non-existent or very, very poor in many places where displaced people are, are crowding together, often without running water um, or access to toilets. And so we're also seeing the um, threat and reality of disease setting in as well, which worsens the humanitarian crisis substantially. And, you know, Foreign correspondents still aren't allowed into Gaza, so I haven't seen for myself what the conditions there are like. But we have a photographer on the ground there, uh, Loue Ayoub, who has taken really powerful images of desperate people waiting in long lines just for a bowl of soup or a bag of flour. Um, wow. And that's just in the south, um, in, in the Rafah area, where more than a million people are crowded together, having been displaced by the fighting and, and told to evacuate by Israeli forces. But we still know that hundreds of thousands of people in the north remain in what is basically still a battle zone, and they're cut off from aid. And so it's very unclear how they're eating at all. 
So I understand that you've spoken to a lot of aid workers, people who've worked in places like Afghanistan, Somalia, and Sudan. When they look at the crises that have happened in those places, how does that compare to the situation they're seeing right now in Gaza in terms of a humanitarian crisis and the aid that's able to get in? So they all say that this, what they're seeing in Gaza is unprecedented. It is so bad, the fact of being basically 2 million people being trapped in this very small sliver of land and the immense Mm -hmm. restrictions on aid getting in compound the problem as well. One of these conversations that I had was with Steve Taravella, who's the spokesman for the World Food Program, who spoke about just how bad it is in Gaza in comparison with some of the other contexts in which they work. I think what we're seeing in Gaza right now is as bad as it gets. From a humanitarian aid perspective, Um, we rarely see conditions this desperate because of how quickly they've unfolded, how severely they've unfolded, and how widespread the hunger is. And if dramatic action isn't taken, could fall into famine in the next six months. Um, That's a really rapid deterioration um, from a global context. So, yes, the situation there is as severe as it seems. Yeah, and the scenes that are coming out of Gaza right now that you see are just really striking. You know, my colleague Peter Bresnan showed me a video yesterday, and Claire, I'd, I'd just like to watch that together with you. It shows aid trucks arriving in Gaza. So if we could watch that, and then could you just describe a little bit what's happening in this scene sure. right now? And are those scenes typical of day-to-day life in Gaza right now? So in the video, you can see sort of crowds of people swarming an aid truck, climbing on top, trying to reach desperately needed aid. From what I understand from talking to many aid workers, this is quite common, and especially in harder-to-reach areas of the Gaza Strip where aid convoys are able to get through um, very infrequently. People are hungry, they're desperate, there's a a sense of kind of public order breaking down. And so I've heard from UNRWA, which is the main UN agency charged with delivering the aid inside uh, Gaza, that they have to travel now with police convoys, but it's difficult to sort of arrange that because there's a real threat of, of kind of, yeah, people kind of rushing to aid trucks because they're so desperate to get their hands on anything to feed their families. Yeah. And I know that in war, access to food has been historically difficult, but there's something that seems really acute about what is happening in this war right now. Claire, do we know precisely what it is about this war that's causing a humanitarian crisis? So there are a number of factors, but a huge factor is that Gaza is under siege. It's been under an Israeli uh, blockade for years. And then since the war began, after the Hamas attacks of October 7th, Israel has cut off uh, many crossing points and and, uh, supply lines of things like electricity and um, water to Gaza. What's the rationale for cutting off supplies like water and electricity to Gaza right now? They say that they don't want to enable Hamas to be able to carry out further attacks. 
But critics charge that this is collective punishment um, of a civilian population. Mm. And they're also controlling the aid, all of the life-saving assistance that's going into Gaza. So most of that aid has been coming uh, since October um, via the Rafah border crossing, which is between Egypt and Gaza. And yet Israel uh, has to inspect everything that goes into the Gaza Strip. Um, and they control, they exercise a large degree of control over that process. And so aid agencies say that the inspection process is still lengthy, it's inefficient, items are rejected without explanation, there mm-hmm. aren't enough trucks and fuel inside Gaza to distribute the aid because Israel is limiting the amount of fuel that's allowed in, um, and that it's really difficult and dangerous for humanitarian workers once the aid is inside the enclave to actually distribute it because there's so much bombardment um, and that even in times when uh, they've been told by Israeli forces that an area is safe, that that area then comes under attack. I think it might be helpful to understand how aid usually enters Gaza. So first, what kind of aid are we talking about? What is that process for it to go in? And how is that different from what we're currently seeing right now? Because aid has historically gone into Gaza before the start of this conflict, right? Yeah. So before the start of the conflict, about 500 trucks worth of goods entered Gaza each day. And some of that was humanitarian aid, but the bulk of it was commercial goods. And after the Hamas attacks on October 7th, Israel blocked the entry of commercial trucks to Gaza. And so most of the trucks getting through now are are aid trucks, and it's about 100 to 200 between that on on average per day. Mm -hmm. And then they primarily, as I mentioned, transited through the Rafah border crossing with Egypt. And the gates are operated by... Egyptian and, and Palestinian officials, but there's a, um, a kind of convoluted inspection process that um, requires Egyptian truck drivers to take their cargo down basically what is a, a pretty rough desert road to a crossing point between Egypt and Israel. And that journey takes about two hours, truck drivers say. So these trucks need to first get inspected by the Egyptian government and then another inspection by the Israeli yes. government? Okay. That's right. So there's two levels of screening. And then the Israeli inspection point is open only during the day, and it's closed on Friday afternoons and on Saturdays. Drivers describe waiting in a long line of trucks for their turn to have their loads inspected by Israeli agents who use dogs and and scanning equipment. And then aid agencies, including UNICEF, have told me that items including you know, water pipes for desalination equipment, generators, oxygen tanks— tents that could serve as shelters but have metal poles have been rejected. Actually, a a couple of senators, um, U.S. senators, uh, Chris Van Hollen and and Jeff Merkley, uh, visited the inspection point in a warehouse full of rejected items um, and described that visit to me and a couple other reporters in Cairo. And one thing they mentioned was that scalpels, um, as part of a midwifery kit for delivering babies, uh, had mm-hmm. been rejected. And, you know, this is a necessary item for delivering the the babies that continue to be born each day in Gaza. Complicating things further, when one item on a truck is rejected, um, the whole truckload is rejected and the process has to be repeated and that can take weeks. So, you know, truck drivers are are regularly kind of spending days sleeping in their trucks uh, going through this long process. I understand that 
a component of this is security and, you know, the fear of not letting in potentially dangerous items coming in. But I do have to wonder, is there any way to speed up the process or roll back maybe some of these inspections as you see in lots of other regulatory processes? Has that been floated? And and what is the response to people who do say, can we speed up this process? Yeah, so UN agencies are calling for more crossing points to be opened, which would speed up the process, a kind of less complicated inspection process. And then some of these items that I mentioned that are regularly rejected um, on grounds that, you know, Israeli officials say, okay, they, they are dual use. They could be used by Hamas to propel their rockets or to somehow, you know, ease their, help their operations. And that some of these items be sort of recognized as the, the humanitarian aid that they are. Um, so that's those are some of the recommendations that are that have been discussed. Yeah, and besides the stricter controls by Israeli officials, is there anything else that is slowing the aid flow, or is it really coming down to this tight control of that? What aid workers say is really the biggest obstacle to the delivery of humanitarian aid is the ongoing fighting and the war itself. There continued to be uh, sort of widespread and seemingly indiscriminate attacks throughout the Gaza Strip and particularly around hospitals, which has hastened the collapse of Gaza's medical system. Recently, attacks on on two hospitals in the sort of central area of Gaza, Al-Aqsa and Nasser, caused the you know international organizations that worked there, including Doctors Without Borders, to withdraw their international staff. And so there's a kind of inability of aid workers and humanitarians to to work in environments in which they're coming under attack. And then also, as I mentioned earlier, the North is basically entirely cut off um, from aid. Only a, about a quarter of the missions that humanitarian agencies have tried to to undertake to get food, basic supplies, medicines to people in the North, only a quarter of them uh, since the start of the month have been approved by Israeli authorities and the rest have been denied. And so humanitarians aren't even able to access um, a large part of the, the Gaza Strip. And then they fear for their lives. Our staff are working under many of the same conditions as those we're trying to feed. We have staff who've lost their homes, who've lost family, uh, who are you know, who have been sleeping in warehouses and and shelters, um, just like others. Palestinian aid workers are also displaced um, and trying to protect their families. And even sometimes when they receive assurances from the Israeli government that they are in a safe place or that their location won't be targeted, uh, they they find themselves under attack. So just this month, for example, an Israeli munition hit a five-year-old daughter of an employee of Doctors Without Borders at what was supposed to be a, a safe house that had been deconflicted with the is- Israel Defense Forces, and uh, the girl died the next day. So this is the sort of um, story that that is quite commonplace, unfortunately. More than 150 UN staff members have been killed uh, since the start of this conflict, which the UN says is the highest of any conflict that they've worked in. Basically, what aid organizations are saying is the only real way to address this humanitarian crisis is for there to be a ceasefire. So what we 
really need is um, opening of more border crossings. But of course, that's, you know, what we most need is, you know, a lasting humanitarian pause or a ceasefire. The hostilities have to end for us to be able to get in safely and deliver food safely to those who are waiting for it. After the break, we hear how the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is part of a genocide case against Israel at a United Nations court. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. For Israeli officials, do they note this humanitarian crisis? And why are officials seemingly slowing down this aid if it really is hitting a fever pitch right now? So in terms of the restrictions on fuel, um, Israel worries that it will be stolen by Hamas to power rockets um, and wants to prevent uh, through the inspection process any smuggling of illicit goods. Israeli officials have also accused the United Nations without providing evidence of turning a blind eye to large-scale diversion of aid by Hamas. Um, but UN officials have denied those claims. And a senior U.S. official told my my colleagues that um, the Israeli government hasn't presented any uh, specific evidence of Hamas theft or diversion of assistance um, sent by the UN. Israel has said repeatedly that they are doing everything they can Uh, to get aid into Gaza. Um, The Israeli government spokesman, Elon Levy, said last week that Israel had facilitated the delivery of over 130,000 tons of humanitarian aid um, and has excess capacity to inspect trucks. And they've kind of pointed the finger both at, um, at Hamas and at the United Nations for the slow pace of aid delivery and the inability of people who need it, civilians, to to get access. Uh, but again, both parties reject those, those claims. I know that the United States and President Biden have said that they are steadfast allies of the Israeli government. They are supportive of their efforts against Hamas right now. But in light of this humanitarian crisis, how has the United States government or President Biden responded to all of this? Have they said anything? So the United States has been pushing Israel to um, ease the delivery of humanitarian aid and do more to ensure that aid is getting to civilians in Gaza. Um, And under U.S. pressure in December, Israel opened a second crossing at at Karim Shalom, which is between Israel and Gaza directly. And the inspection Mm -hmm. process there moves a bit faster. The World Food Program has begun sending convoys from Jordan to Gaza, basically going through the West Bank and Israel. So there are there are some new routes that have opened up, but but many obstacles remain. As this is all happening, there is also a case against Israel at the International Court of Justice. There, Israel is facing accusations from South Africa, which brought the case that it is actually committing a genocide 
in Gaza. Claire, I know you've been following this case. Can you just explain first, what is the International Court of Justice and what kind of authority does it have over world governments? So the International Court of Justice was established after World War II to settle disputes between states. And it's the main judicial body of the United Nations. Um, and both Israel and South Africa are among the the nations that recognize the court's jurisdiction. So uh, the... 1948 Genocide Convention, which was ratified after the Holocaust, made genocide a crime under international law and gave the ICJ the authority to determine whether states have committed it. South Africa is asking for for provisional measures, which is basically um, like an injunction, sort of temporary measures uh, to stop what it says is a genocide that's underway in Gaza. Mm -hmm. And the court is expected to to rule on those measures um, in the coming weeks, although its determination of whether genocide is occurring could take longer. Um, but the court's rulings, they're, they're legally binding, but it can be difficult to enforce them. Um, and, you know, Russia, for example, ignored a 2022 order by the court to, to stop its war against Ukraine. So it's not necessarily the case that um, that the ruling will will be respected by Israel, but if there is a, a judgment for provisional measures, sort of change how, how the war is viewed globally. Claire, why did South Africa bring this case? So it is a bit random in a sense, um, since South Africa is not a party to the conflict in any way. Uh, but as a member of the court and as a, um, a signatory to the Genocide Convention, it argues that it has the duty to to prevent genocide uh, when it thinks it's occurring um, because it's in the sort of the collective interest of of the world to prevent genocide. And also, I mean, the key piece to establish uh, in bringing a case before the ICJ is that there's some dispute between the states in question. And so South Africa argues that it sent all these diplomatic notes um, warning Israel that it thinks it's committing genocide and Israel has um, has rejected that. And so that's really the heart of this. And I think, you know, it's uh, it's kind of representing what is a pretty prevalent feeling among the the global South, which is, you know, horror at what is unfolding in, in Gaza. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, yeah, that's essentially why they've, why they've brought the case to the court. I see. And can you walk me through the case a little bit more? Is part of it this slowdown of aid into Gaza that we've been talking about? So, yes. Basically, South Africa argues that a, a kind of combination of um, of events, including Israel's, you know, ki- widespread killing of of Palestinian civilians in Gaza, and its its hampering of aid, as we've been discussing, together uh, constitute uh, an effort to destroy Palestinians as a group in Gaza, and that's that's part of sort of the the rubric for what's necessary to kind of meet the bar of genocide is destroying an intention to destroy a group and. Israel has has denied that it's called these these claims false and baseless. The the United mm-hmm. States um, Secretary Antony Blinken has also called the the case meritless. The charge of genocide is meritless. It's particularly galling, given that those who are attacking Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, as well as their supporter Iran, continue to openly call 
for the annihilation of Israel and the mass murder of Jews. But uh, it's, yes, as a key part of the the accusation is that Israel is deliberately obstructing the flow of food and basic supplies into Gaza in an effort to uh, destroy the Palestinian population there. Hmm. Claire, I want to ask you what it's been like covering this crisis. I know that it's difficult for reporters to get into Gaza, but what's your experience been? So it's really difficult. First, because foreign journalists are not allowed into Gaza, except with uh, the Israel Defense Forces. And in those cases, it's impossible to talk to Palestinian civilians. And there are restrictions around um, around what journalists can can do and see. And so we don't have the, the full access. There are amazing, courageous Palestinian journalists doing incredible work to document what's, what's unfolding under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Um, and so we learn a lot from, from them. And we're trying our best as foreign correspondents to, to report from afar by, by calling uh, people inside Gaza. But um, communications blackouts have made the reporting process um, really difficult and also the process, I should mention, of, of delivering humanitarian aid. So right now, for example, it's the seventh day of a, a widespread communications blackout in Gaza um, because so much of the, the telecommunications network has been damaged by Israeli strikes. And so it's really difficult to get through to people there. Uh, But we do hear things also, accounts from UN uh, representatives and and aid workers who are um, going in and and doing missions there and then coming out and and talking to the press. Um, So we do gain some insights from them um, as to Mm -hmm. the situation on the ground. Well, Claire, thank you so much for all the effort and the work that you've been doing to cover this situation. It was a pleasure to get to talk to you today, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Claire Parker is the Cairo Bureau Chief for The Post and has been covering the Israel-Gaza War. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Rennie Svernovsky with help from Peter Bresnan. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. Thanks to Jesse Messner-Hage. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to help us continue international reporting like what you heard today. Plus, you also get access to Washington Post podcasts ad-free in Apple Podcasts. I'm Arjun Singh, your guest host. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.